Let us pray together. O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant to us that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Welcome to Roswell Community Church. Uh, whether you are here with us in the building or watching online, we're so very glad to have you. My name is David Wilhite, and I'm the community director here. And my name is Lauren. I'm on the worship team here, and I belong to this guy. That's why we're standing so close up here. Oh, I thought we were standing close because it's Valentine's Day. See, I didn't forget. Speaking of things you shouldn't forget, the parenting seminar is coming up here next weekend. Don't forget to register on the app. You'll be able to take this seminar virtually or in person, but you have to register. Then we'll be able to send you all the info you need. We're registered, and we're really looking forward to the time together. Right, David? Yes, uh, I am very much looking forward to that. Also looking forward to delivering your lint boxes. So... Today, if you're here with us in the building, after the service, we will be handing you one of these, one per family. If you're watching with us online, uh, a member of our staff team or elder team will be delivering your box to you at your doorstep sometime between this afternoon and Tuesday evening. So if you get a call from an unknown number, it's probably us telling you we're on the way or potentially that we're lost. Um, you'll want to hang on to these boxes throughout Lent, which begins this Wednesday with our Ash Wednesday service. This service is online only and we will be broadcasted at 3, 6, and 8 p.m. Yeah. What am I forgetting? No, that's it. That's all the announcements we have. So uh, please continue with us in worship as Matt Miller brings the sermon. Thank you, Will Heights. Happy Valentine's Day to you, too. Happy Valentine's Day to you all. It's not a real holiday, right? I was supposed to elicit a reaction. Yes, Matt, it's not a real holiday. No matter what Becky says. Uh, well, I am Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to be with you today. Uh, on Valentine's Day, several people have asked, are we doing, because we're reading through the Bible, and, you know, we're preaching from something we read in the Bible that week, and if you all know, since you've been reading along, that we are starting, we started Song of Solomon, and so you're going like, okay, Valentine's Day, Song of Solomon. No, we're doing Ecclesiastes. So, um, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Come on now. You know you're glad. All right. Well, I had my very first, um, I believe he's Kobe, right? Kobe, Kobe beef steak uh, a couple weeks ago, about two or three weeks ago. Now, apparently it's actually supposed, it's really just a uh, Wagyu, apparently is the kind I had. But Kobe sounds really cool because I've, I've heard a lot about it over the years. Um, and... Um, if you're not familiar with that particular steak, it is uh, the black gold caviar of meats. It is the hand-rolled chocolate truffle of steaks. Uh, in essence, it is the special breed of, of a Japanese cow 
It's a real thing. I know you're going like, what? No, no, there's a special breed of Japanese cow that gets pampered into tasting awesome for people. It's true. Um, they get special care. It's like spa-like care. No joke. If you, re you read on it, there's actually listen to classical music while they eat, which apparently is a relaxing technique, which maybe we should all try. Um, there's no joke. Actually, massage the cows. Cows get massaged so that they are like in better health, able to, to eat more. The goal is to keep the cows at the lowest stress level possible so that they can be as wonderful and tender. Apparently in the summer when their appetite drops a little bit, they, they add a beer-fed diet into their, into their food. So this is the steak of steaks. This is, this is pampered beef for you. This is no Chick-fil-A like stumbling around trying to be a cow commercial cow. This is a impressive... Japanese-fed, awesome steak. I don't know. I've actually heard someone say that it's like another kind of meat. And it was just that. A friend of mine surprised us. Two of us went over for dinner, and he had gotten these steaks. He'd heard about it. He'd never had them before either. And so we prepared them meticulously with, candidly, a degree of trepidation in light of the cost of the meat itself. But it was Unbelievable. I'm sorry. It was unbelievable. Like, we, we sat at dinner, and we're all talkers, and we just sat at dinner, and all we kept doing was just like, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I just, it's, it's so good. We, just didn't, we, we couldn't talk about anything but the bites of tasty delight that were, I'm pretty sure that C.S. Lewis, when he's thinking of Turkish delight, that's what he's talking about. It is, it's, it's Wagyu steak. We enjoyed it, like, all the way through. It was pure delight for about 20 minutes of a very quiet, very calm dinner. Never had meat like that before, and Lord willing, I hope to have some again someday. Which leads us to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the question we're going to answer this morning is, how do we become the kind of people who enjoy whatever measure of material wealth we have? How do we become the kind of people who, who actually enjoy the material gifts, the material wealth, the blessings, the, you know, Kobe stakes that we receive, small or large. Now, just a quick word about Ecclesiastes. Now, however the interpreters, you know, agree or disagree about this book, one thing that pretty much everyone lands on and talks through consistently, everyone agrees in one way or another that the book of Ecclesiastes is meant to expose the, the emptiness, the, the futility, the, the frustration, and frankly, the, finally, the misery of life without God. The author is basically saying, life without God 
doesn't end up yielding anything but smoke, vapor. It, it dissipates into nothingness. It becomes vanity, meaninglessness. All the days of our life under the sun. So it's uh, not typically a, a happy skipping kind of book, but there's actually a tremendous amount of wisdom in here to invite us to look at and to walk through life with wisdom, discretion, and discernment. So how do we become the kind of people who enjoy the th whatever measure of material gifts God has given us? We're going to look at it under two headings. One is why we don't enjoy what we have. And secondly, how do we begin to enjoy what we have? So first, why don't we enjoy what we have? Well, we don't enjoy it, uh, first of all, is because we don't see that what we have is a gift. We just read in Ecclesiastes 5.19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy it and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Instead of seeing everything that we've received, we have as being given, as being a gift from God, Instead, we think it's one of two things. It's either a, a right, like I have, the, I have the right, whatever I don't have or I don't have enough of, I have some kind of a right to have it, especially if I see that you have it, especially if you have it in, in abundance. I don't see that it's a gift, and if it's a, if it's a gift, well then, who am I to decide as to who gives what to whom? A few weeks ago, um, someone reached out to us, and, uh, and said, hey, listen, I work for, he, work at a small, he works at a small medical practice, and he said, listen, I have an extra flu vaccine, uh, not flu, um, corona vaccine. Matt, do you want it? I need to know in the next 30 minutes. I was like, absolutely, I'll take it. An hour before I went, he called and said, listen, my parents aren't going to be able to come. Uh, I was going to try and get them a vaccine, but they're not going to be able to come. Can Becky come also? And I was like, yes. So we showed up. We got our first flu vaccine, a COVID vaccine back in December, and immediately as we left, Becky and I felt guilty. Like, I mean, I mean, my parents, you know, they're a little older than us, and, and they don't have a vaccine, you know? It's like, who, who are we to get the vaccine? And you start feeling all guilty. And finally, I just had this moment, and Becky was feeling more guilty than I was. Um, she's just she's more holy than I am. Uh, and I, was, I just suddenly, I was like, wait a minute. It wasn't ours to give. It, it, it wasn't ours to give. It wasn't our vaccine to give. It didn't belong to us. He reached out and said, do you want it, yes or no? And so I was like, yes. Why say no? Yes, it's, it's not mine to reject. It, what's mine to reject, I guess, but it certainly wasn't mine to give. And so it was a, it was a gift. All that we have is, is gift. I know this is not rocket science. If, if you've been a Christian, you look at that and go like, okay, that's, okay, cool. Next point, please. Like, it's just simple. It's obvious. But, but, but just think about it for a second. Run through your portfolio right now. Every dollar you have in your checking account, every dollar you have in your wallet, your house, your cars, the money you're anticipating making, the bonuses that may show up, all of it. Every dollar you've ever had and every dollar you ever will have, all of it belongs to him, and it's been given to you as a gift. One of the reasons why we don't enjoy what God's given us is because we don't see it as a gift. We see it as something that's due to us or it's something that, secondly, that we earned. It's mine, you mean gift? It's mine. I, I worked really, really hard. You know how hard I worked at school to get the degree, to get the job, to get the connections, to get the... Like, come on, I, I earned this. This is a meritocracy, right? 
You, you get what you earn because of how hard you worked at it or, the, or the, the creativity of your negotiating skills with your new boss or you listen to the market trends and you pulled, you pulled out just in time to not lose a bunch and, and you make sure you invested just in time and so you're smart. Of course you did well. Of course you're, everything is fine. So it's a merit. Of course I don't see it as a gift. And so I don't end up enjoying it because I think it's mine to begin with. Paul corrects us. He reorients us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you receive it, then why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now, Paul's not talking specifically about material pieces. He's actually talking about a whole broad swath of things. But he's saying, listen, <laughs> everything you have, you received. And so why do you walk around with, like, a chip on your shoulder as if you had not been given every bit of it. So we don't enjoy what we have because we don't see it as a gift. And Ecclesiastes point out that not only do we not see it as a gift, but we don't see, we don't believe that the enjoyment of our wealth is a gift. There's something that's particular here in, in, uh, in Ecclesiastes. Again, back to verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possession and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. The power to enjoy them is a gift. Like, we talk about how, like, all is grace, right? But, like, all is grace. We cannot even enjoy the things that are for our enjoyment without God giving us the grace to enjoy them. Like, that's how unable we are. It is a grace, it is a favor to be able to enjoy the things that are for our enjoyment. This is an interesting contrast because we have verse 19, and then just a couple of verses later, we have in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, listen, it says, There is an evil that I have come to see under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth and possession and honor. Okay, cool, same as last, right? So that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Wow. Yet, God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, a grievous evil, a, a sore affliction, is what another version says. So both the gift of the possessions and the power to enjoy them are both gifts from God. I think one of the reasons why we struggle here is that we think the, the reason we don't enjoy what God gives us is that we think that the power of enjoyment is in the thing. Like, let's say it this way. That the power of the enjoyment of the stake is in the stake. It's because it's marbled in a very unique, particular way. That, that, that that's where the enjoyment is. Now, it is enjoyable. Trust me. It is enjoyable, but the power of the enjoyment is not in the thing. It's not, in the, it's not in the car. It's not in the, it's, it's not in it. It is actually a gift of God that we enjoy as we move towards this, we'll get to this, with open hands, not as ours, but not for its own benefit sake, but for our sake. That it is not in the thing. Which is why researchers, right, show that, that, the, that the, um, the dopamine levels you know what you know, dopamine is? It's the part that makes you happy. That the dopamine levels in you as you are anticipating the purchase that you're about to make on Amazon, 
drop, you click the button, you get a, you get a hit, and then poof, it goes down. And you get a little, you know, get a little bump when it shows up at the door again. But that's, it's all in the anticipation. The thing itself actually doesn't do it. I mean, Becky and I have this saying that we tell each other all the time. You've probably heard it if you've been hanging out with us at all. It's, there's the thing, I'm sorry, there's the idea of the thing, and then there's the thing, right? There's always the idea of the thing, and then there's what the thing ends up being. But you know, we always talk about this at Christmas. It's like, everything's going to be awesome. You're going to have a great Christmas. You get on the other side of Christmas, and you're like, I'm depressed, right? It didn't reveal, it didn't give itself because the thing is not the thing. It, the power of enjoyment is not in the thing. And, and everyone's saying the opposite. We tell each other the opposite. I, I, every commercial is telling you the opposite. And we know it, but we don't. We believe, we believe. And God's saying, I want you to believe me that the enjoyment's going to come from me because it is meant to be enjoyed. And thirdly, we, we don't enjoy what we have because we love it instead of enjoying it. Because we love it with affection instead of just enjoying it. The entire invitation of the book of Ecclesiastes is listen. Yes, you can live wisely, but you never know. Things might not turn out the way you think they will. And so enjoy what ends up being brought today. What you have, enjoy that. If it ends up not being so, then make the most of that also. Like live this way under the sun. That's the invitation of the book of Ecclesiastes. Not promises about how it actually will play itself out. We don't enjoy what we would enjoy, the good gifts of the Lord, because, because we love them instead of just enjoy them. Ecclesiastes 5.10, it's just a little bit earlier than what we read. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, well, they increase who eat them, and that advantage has their owner. I'm sorry, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whatever he eats, little or much, but the full stomach of the rich is not let, will not let him sleep. Full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Money and wealth is a fickle lover here on Valentine's Day. It's a fickle lover. And we give our affections to it, whatever it is, it robs us of the very gift that it's meant to receive in it. Namely, plainly, it's enjoyment. Of course, it's counterintuitive, right? This is really what um, the scriptures call, at the end of the day, call covetousness, right? The, the, the love of money is, is called covetousness in the scriptures. Um, and it's what keeps us from enjoying what we have. It's one of the reasons. The author of Ecclesiastes, he just he calls this love of money, this covetousness, of course, futile and, and meaningless, arguing that the, the person who's going to covet something never actually get what they were intended to, namely the enjoyment of the very thing. Because the increase of wealth ends up just bringing greater anxiety. You see it in verse 12, right? Do you hear what it said? It says, whoever eats little or much, 
Like he sleeps really well, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Awake and anxious and uncertain, the laborer sleeps well, he rests content with little or much, but the covetous person cannot sleep. His abundance won't permit him to sleep. Why? Because he's constantly on guard to protect his riches, his or her riches, from an ever-growing number of people and contexts and environments that want to consume them. They're mine, and, and they're wanting to be consumed, of course, whether that's the government or your family or, or a charity or your church, and everyone wants your stuff, right? I remember when we, our kids did sports teams. It was like, you know, different teams, everyone was selling something to you or for you to sell for them. It was like, oh my goodness me, you've got to be kidding me, right? How much? You want something from me. So the writer of Ecclesiastes asks sarcastically, what benefit does this covetous person get from all the accumulation, from all these riches, except just to keep their eyes on it, is what he says. And literally, to look at them with your eyes. That's what you get. You end up spending your time looking at it. Now, if you've ever, uh, like, like, dabbled with investing or even just created, you know, a healthy 401k portfolio and, and you notice that the market is increasing rapidly like it has been in the last little bit. It's been a pretty, pretty bull market from all I understand. Um, Jeff, that's correct. Just, just nod your head. As long as he says yes, that's correct. Um, then then what's, what's interesting is you start paying more and more attention because your money's growing fast, right? And you're not doing anything. You're not doing anything for it. It's just growing. And, and suddenly we're more attentive and more attentive, or the closer you get to retirement, suddenly it really, really matters. I'm not there yet, but I know enough people that it's like it really, really matters as to how much you're going to risk and not risk, and we pay hyper attention to it. Our eyes are on it. We can't enjoy it anymore because we love it. Which is why the invitation of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, he says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Money is made to be used, not loved. Your, your wealth, your, your things, they're made to be used, not loved. And, and the question that emerges off of the pages of Ecclesiastes and repeatedly throughout the scriptures to you this morning is, do you love your stuff? Because that's not the fitting relationship with your stuff, is love. There is a relationship to be had with it. It's just not affection. It's not desire. Money and wealth cannot bear the weight of our affection. It can't handle it. It will crush itself under it. And, of course, it will eventually crush us under it. Which is why the writer of Ecclesiastes in chapter 6, verse 7 says... All the toil of a man is for his mouth. Work, work, work for my mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. It doesn't work. If it's love, if it's affection, if it's mine, it, it doesn't work. It will not satisfy. It is an empty cistern. So that's some of the reasons why we don't enjoy what we have. So, so okay, so we don't enjoy what we have, or it's hard to enjoy what we have, or we struggle to enjoy what we, what we have. How can we begin enjoying it? How can we begin enjoying what we have? Well, how do we cultivate the kind of heart disposition that enjoys what we've been given? Of course, some of it's natural and obvious, right? We, 
we see it as a gift instead of not, right? We are, that's the opposite side of what we just said. It would mean I look at my things as a gift from the Lord, okay? I ask the Lord, Lord, help me see this as a gift from you. Sticking rhythms of life and purpose and saying, this is not mine. I'm going to give this back to you. And this car that I'm driving, I'm going to, Lord, this is your car. And therefore, you do with it what, do with it what you please. This home is yours. That, those are exercises, spiritual exercises of turning them over to the Lord. And that does, does have impact. But one of the things that we discover throughout the scriptures is that that kind of heart disposition doesn't come naturally to us. Actually, the writer of Philippians would say that it's, or the Apostle Paul in Philippians would say that this is a learned enjoyment. Philippians 4, verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstances. Listen, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Contented enjoyment is a secret. That's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, contented enjoyment is this, it's the secret. It's not obvious. It's not plain. It's not intuitive. It's this secret that has to be whispered to us. It's not loud. It's not boisterous. No, pride is boisterous. Look what I have. That's boisterous. But contentment is a secret. And it's a secret that must be learned, he says. It doesn't arrive to you. It's not natural. It must be learned. We must be trained in it over and over again. And some of the invitation of that is, is us, what Ecclesiastes would say, would be making friends with your life as it is. I was walking with someone not too long ago, and we we're talking about his marriage, and he's talking about the gaps of his relationship with his wife. And, and I just remember looking at him, and I was like, you know, I think, that's why you probably want to go to walk with me. Um, I said, I think you... Um, you want to be married to the person that you have the idea about, not the person that you have. Because I don't think that's who you have. That's not who you married. Contentment is learned over time. We've come to realize this is what I have, and I am trained in it. I am contented in it. I make friends with it. One of the ways in which that's most effectively engaged, and there's multiple different ways we, but we don't have time for that. So just, just one simple way in which we engage that is, is to practice delay. Practice the spiritual discipline of delay to train your soul, to train your heart into the secret of contentment. That if you are thinking about purchasing A, B, X, whatever, that you delay that you let all of its promise, all of its dopamine run its course. And that you then step into it for the enjoyment of what it is, not for the false promise in which it holds. 
right? It's not in it anyway. You won't get it. So let it run its course. Give something enough time for it to run its course. I'm playing with that idea right now as it relates to a car. I've had my car about 11 years now. It was a year old when I got it. I love my car. I've loved my car. One of my bucket list things is to always drive a car that I enjoy. I like walking up to my car. I'm in my car a decent amount. I like my car. But it's getting up in age, you know? It's starting to show some things, like it stalls at red lights, you know, things like that. Um, it's not a big deal. You just start right back up, off you go. Um, but, you know, it's starting to show some of its wear and tear. And so I'm thinking about a, a car and I, looking through different things, you know, and you start looking at cars and like, it's like a vortex of never ending happiness, right? I mean, like, you, there, there are so many options and things. And, you know, 11 years ago, I mean, my car, like, you know, you still have to like crank it in the front and stuff. Like now cars do stuff. You can like push a button and stuff. It's pretty exciting. I don't know if you guys know this, but pretty exciting out there. Um, and like, I was like hardcore dopamine for a while there. I had about three days where like, if you just like looked at my Google search history, it was, <laughs> it, it told you where my heart was. I was falling in love with multiple, multiple cars, by the way. <laughs> so it's truly, um, but, but some of it was like, I, I'm in, I knew I'm in no hurry. I'm actually probably not doing things till the end of the year anyway. So it's like, okay, we're just good. And, and giving it time to run its course. I imagine myself in these different cars. I imagine myself pulling up in one of these spots, getting out, walking back out to it, you know, just, oh yeah, yeah, because it does that now. Um, and, but like letting it run its course. Well, it's been about two weeks now, and you know what's great? It's like, I'll see one of those cars, you know, one of the three to four that I kind of landed on, you know, that I really am excited about. Now they're everywhere, of course, as you all know. But like the, the power is not in it as much because, you know, it's been a minute. And now it's like more right-sized in what it is. I can see it as something I'm looking forward to enjoy, not something that I must give my love to. I'm just practicing this as one way of just delay allowing it to, to protect us. Becky and I have certain rules in our home about a certain amount of dollars that are not going to be spent on the spot unless we give it at least 24 hours. It just protects us from stupid decisions, impulse buys. That comes because we made some stupid decisions back in the day and some impulse buys, right? So we learn. I think it's called wisdom. Delay. Delay is one of the ways in which we take it out of the thing and invite God to give us the enjoyment of it. The second is that we, uh, how do we become the kind of people who, in, who begin to enjoy the things for what, what they are? One, and this is pivotal, is that we uncouple what we have from the reality of the of, the God, of God's favor, of his love, of his acceptance, of, of his presence. I mean, for, uh, Hebrews 15.5, I read you the first portion there, right? It says, keep, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, which if I'm you, I'm like, great, cool. How do I do that? Well, I cut off this, the verse, but look what it says. For he has said, how do you do this? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do those seem like they go together to you naturally? What's, what's what the writer of Hebrews trying to say here? You want to keep your, can keep your affections out of your stuff? You have to uncouple them from the reality of what, of what the presence, the grace, the gift, the favor of the Lord means. It means if you don't have stuff, if you're about to lose your job, and there's a set of people right now who are looking, facing, uh, like, um, like the reality of potentially being laid off this week. It's a whole swath of people because of some stuff going on in the community. 
it is not connected to the fact that the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So if you can't make your rent payment or your mortgage payment in two months, it has nothing to do with, I, with God's love, with his favor, with his blessing, with the fact that he's with you and for you. It has nothing to do with that. So you can be free from the love of money because they're not fused together, you see? So you can suffer or you can have abundance either way. You're not going like, okay, cool. I have much because the Lord is pleased with me. And you know you do that. I know because I do it. If, I, if, I, if I'm good and if, I, if I'm, he's happy with me, then he'll, he'll bless me. He won't withhold any of the good things from me. The scripture clearly uncouples those two from one another. It disconnects them. God says, what you have or don't have is never an indication of my presence or my favor on you. Upon your heart or upon your life. The prosperity gospel hooks the two together, fuses them as an indication of your godliness or of your hope, but not the gospel of Christ. Well, how do we become the kind of people who are free to enjoy what God has given us? I think the most significant and probably the overarching piece under which everything else rests is, it is for us to shift our affections, our love from money and wealth to a better object of affection. I said money can't handle it, right? It's not made to be loved. It's made to be used. It's not built for that. It's an affection issue. So we have to work on our affections, not our portfolio. And it's not like, oh, I'll work on my affections after I get my portfolio to a certain place, right? Which is some of what we can wrestle with. It's like, I just, as soon as I get to here, well, and then, yes, I would like to have my affections rightly sized. Now, Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The order matters. You must delight yourself in the Lord in order for you ever to even be able to receive the desires of your heart. Not because you're not capable of it, because you're not capable of it without him. Because your right-sized heart is able to move into whatever that is, by the way, which is not the desires of your heart and not always the desires you're aware of. He will give you things that you don't know that you really want and need, not in the way that you want or need them necessarily, right? We've talked about that with Job. So he's doing stuff, not always what we see. If we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give us the desires of our heart, which gives us an opportunity to see him. So how, how, do, we, how do we get this heart? We've we got to get our affection shifted away from stuff, away from our wealth, away from the promise of what's, what the stake will do for you into something new and fresh. And that's where Thomas Chalmers comes through for us. Read this before to y'all. This is one of the best quotes ever. It's a little long, but I want you to just take it in. He's talking about affections. He's explaining how affections work and why they matter so much. This is what he says. He says, it is seldom that any of our bad habits or flaws disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. Things don't just stop. At least it is very seldom that this is done by the instrumentality of reasons, not because you think about it right, or by the force of mental determination, because you try really hard. No. But what cannot be destroyed, he says, this is the good news, may be dispossessed. And one taste may be made to give away to another 
and to lose its power entirely as the reigning affection of the mind. And here he gives an example. The boy who ceases at length to be a slave to his appetite does so because a more mature taste has brought it into subordination. The young man, the young man may cease to idolize sensual pleasure, but it is because the idol of wealth has taken the ascendancy. So the love of money can cast out the love of sloth. See how it works? However, even the love of money can cease to have mastery over the heart. If it is drawn into the world of ideology and politics, that's not happening at all. And he is now lorded over by the love of power and moral superiority. Isn't that great? You can get rid of your love for money just by loving something else. But listen, listen. But there is not one of these transformations in which the heart is left without an object. The heart's desire for an ultimate object may be conquered. It can, be, it can lose. But its desire to have some object is unconquerable. And here's the line. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is through the expulsive power of a new one. And this is the good news of the gospel. It is therefore only when admitted into the number of God's children through faith in Jesus Christ that the spirit of adoption is poured out on us. It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great, predominant, and supreme affection is delivered from the tyranny of all its former desires and the only way that deliverance is possible. you want to be free from love of money or from love of anything? This is the way. This is always the way. This is the only way. We are desiring beings. God has made us so. Our affections must be engaged. It is not willpower or mental assent. Those, are, those matter. That's right thinking matters. But the affections must be stirred because at the center of us, there's affection and it must be displaced by something more. That's precisely what the gospel invites us to. It's how we become the kind of, how do we become the kind of people who enjoy what we have? We cease loving to have it. And how do we cease to love having it? By the expulsive power of a greater love. The love of a God who has given us every single thing that we have and more so has unthinkably and irrevocably given himself to us, for us, himself, for our life, that we may have his life. One of the clearest signs that that affection journey has changed as something else is starting to take root at the center of our affections, manifests in what we do how we live. We don't live into it. We live out of it. But First Timothy gives us a little bit of a picture of what that looks like. One of the ways in which you can give a kind of a barometer of like, to what degree am I freer than I was today? To what degree am I seeing that I no longer attached affectionate to my things, but just enjoying them? First Timothy chapter 6, the Apostle Paul tells his young disciple, this is how you know that you have it. It doesn't have you. He says, as for the rich in this present age, which includes all of us, charge them not to be haughty, not to be arrogant. You know, like, like this isn't a gift. It's mine. That would be arrogance. 
nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, which is basically the entire book of Ecclesiastes in a line. The uncertainty of riches. Don't set your hope on the thing that actually is unstable ground, but on God. That's certainty. Like that's, that's the ground. Set your hopes there. What kind of God is he? Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He's not miserly. He's given us all these things to enjoy. He's saying, listen, you got riches? Don't let them be the thing. Don't put your hopes in them. Instead, trust God and then enjoy your stuff. Then enjoy your things. Use them for the purpose they've been given, which is for your enjoyment and beyond. And when this is true, this is what shows up. Next verse, he says that they are to be, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure in the, for themselves and, and a good foundation for the future. We read that in, uh, in Matthew chapter 6 this morning. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's the invitation. Do, do you want to take hold of that which is truly life? Do, do you want to take, do you want to be a part of life that is truly life, like the kingdom of God present today? Then, then you got, you got to be free from the love of money. It's really, really challenging and really, really difficult. Instead, you're supposed to just enjoy it. One of the ways in which you know you're free from the love of money, <laughs> if you're satisfied in God, then you're free to enjoy what he's given you. And to the degree in which you're satisfied, to that degree, you'll be able to just enjoy what he's given you. You won't feel guilty for the shot or for the marbled steak. You don't think I should have, you should have invited someone else to have it. No. You'll say, thank you, Lord, for this good gift. And on the day where there is no steak, you'll say, Lord, thank you. Like, I trust you. So do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous, ready to share. It's not yours anyway. How do we enjoy God's good gifts? We see them as a gift. Foretaste of what is to come. One of the things we said around that table that night was this is just a taste. I didn't know some meat could taste this good. I just didn't know. But, but it was just a foretaste of something. And frankly, a foretaste of the kind of someone that we're going to get to experience one day, which is why, why, why God is so vivid in describing what it's going to be like when all is made right and all is made to new. And he does that in no, maybe no more vivid place than he does in Isaiah chapter 25. When he says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he shall swallow up on this mountain the covering that is the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations, and listen, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It's seeing that God with that kind of promise fixing our eyes on him, ruminating on him, on his goodness towards us that moves our affections to having him be the one that is the supreme affection. And we must, 
lean into it, work our way into it on a regular basis. Tomorrow morning, we must lean into it afresh and again. Lord, this is all your things. I give everything I have and everything I am to you. Have mercy on us. This foretaste, this, this meal on a mountain is just an invitation to the meal that we get to take every week. The reminder that God gives us through his son that, hey, listen, are you wondering why you can trust me? Why you, I can be the center of your affection? It's because I have moved heaven and earth to be that for you forever in my death and in my resurrection. This is what we celebrate in the body and the blood of Christ each week. It's the great equalizer. It's the great reminder. It's the place in which we come and say, what am I to bring to you who has given me everything? Everything. And so as you take communion this morning, as you, as you take the body and you take the blood and remember the magnitude of his gift for us, not just our stuff, but all of him giving himself to us and for us, then the invitation is to say, Lord, you can have all of who I am, all of what I have. And, and, would, you, and would you, Lord, turn my affection to you above all? Because if my affection is yours, if you are my affection, if you are my delight, if you are my love, well, then I will be free. And I'll be free to enjoy everything you've given me. Let's pray. Father, thank you. You are a good and gracious and generous God. You see, you've given us all things to enjoy. And there's nothing to enjoy more than the beauty and the majesty and the glory of your son giving himself for us. So we behold that in taking the bread and the cup, like we behold you offered for us, given to us, King of kings, Lord of lords, creator of all things, come to us for us out of your good grace. And so, Lord, would you right-size all of our things in light of that? Would you restore our affection in you above all things? Would you... Would you be the expulsive power and would you be that better affection? We cannot do it in our own. Like you must do it in us. And so we humbly submit ourselves to you in the name and by the power of Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Brothers and sisters, if you belong to Jesus, this is your meal, your remembrance meal, the one who satisfies you. So enjoy the, the bread and the cup remembering his body and his blood for you.